Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, though, let's uh, turn our attention to North Korea and the issues facing the Korean Peninsula. Jay Lefkowitz is a former U.S. Special Envoy for Human Rights in North Korea and currently a leading partner at Kirkland and Ellis. Jay Lefkowitz, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, maybe you could just begin by stating what uh, many people do not know, uh, myself included, perhaps, is the... Um, current position of the United States government when it comes to a unified Korean peninsula? Well, it has been basically the policy of the United States going all the way back to the Korean War uh, that we believe that there really should be one government on the peninsula of Korea. It should be a government led by what is really the, the Republic of Korea, the democratic uh, government that is currently based in Seoul. And the Korean War, when it actually ended, didn't formally end. There, there, there's never really been a cessation of hostilities. And, of course, that's because the, the Chinese have always insisted that everything above the 38th parallel be uh, outside of the, the scope of influence of, of what is South Korea. And so we've kind of been at a stalemate. But our official policy has always been that uh, we support unification of the peninsula. And that's actually been the formal policy of of, of South Korea as well. You know, uh, Jay, I, I, I was listening, uh, reading through the recent op-ed piece that you published in the New York Times where you were saying that as long as the U.S., or this is my interpretation anyway, as long as the U.S. Uh, continues with this policy and remains hard fixated on it, uh, it's going to be very difficult to get some kind of uh, meaningful concession from China that could actually make a difference in this whole situation and end it without a catastrophic type of event uh, on the Korean Peninsula. I think that's a very accurate reading of, of, of my take here. I mean, look, there are, there, are two, there are two parties that we're focused on here. We're focused principally on North Korea, and actually, to his credit, President Trump just signed into law on August 2nd the uh, uh, bill called Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions, and that imposes new sanctions on Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And I think there's certainly a lot that we can do in terms of dealing with North Korea from a sanction perspective. But the fact is we've been dealing with this North Korean issue for decades. The, the six-party talk started in, in 2003. We're now what, about 14 years later, and they are marching inexorably towards not only having the nuclear weapons that they already have, but developing a delivery system uh, that will have the ability to, to, to have ballistic missiles uh, that are nuclear-tipped uh, hit the coast of the United States. And so what President Trump has said, which is correct, is we have to get China to engage here. But it's simple negotiation tactics that you need both carrots and sticks. And I think the most important carrot here is to let China know that we actually are not seeking to exert our influence or South Korea's influence over the northern part of that peninsula. It's not actually something that anybody believes is realistic at this stage. And yet, as long as it remains our official stated policy, I think China believes that it is more to fear 
from a unified peninsula with U.S. influence and South Korea right on its weakest border than it has from this current unstable nuclear regime in North Korea. And if we could just allay those concerns, then I think China would be incentivized to help solve the problem of North Korea. Uh, Jay, I'm sure that you have discussions with some people currently in government, or I imagine that you uh, have a sense of uh, the dynamic there. Do you have a sense that anyone is seriously considering what you're talking about? And uh, if so, what would they hope that China would give as sort of a reciprocation and uh, that could possibly ameliorate the whole situation? So, uh, look, I, I have had a, a, a quite a, a number of, of follow-ups just in the last week from folks who are involved in, in policy issues in the government. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to reveal what they are directly, and I also don't want to in any way suggest that the Trump administration is, is accepting my suggestions, but I think the Trump administration certainly recognizes that the path to a North Korea solution lies through China. And the, the challenge is how to really get the Chinese to the table. And when you say, what would we be looking for? You know, it seems to me that the, the message to China is, look, if we allay your concerns about too much U.S. influence up north of the 38th parallel, in return, we want you to deal with this regime. Now, China has enormous economic clout. They could literally shut all of the remaining lights in Pyongyang out in 48 hours if they wanted to. And they could presumably also uh, change the regime um, if they wanted to. And I think what we have to tell the Chinese is we're going to give you some time to do this. But if not, then here are the sticks. The sticks are we are going to have to protect U.S. citizens. We are going to have to think about putting short-range missiles in the region, whether in Japan or South Korea. We're going to have to start building a missile defense system that is there to protect the United States' interests. And it has to be in the region to deal with North Korea. And, of course, China certainly doesn't want the United States to do that. So I think we need a set of carrots and sticks to have a productive negotiation. Uh, Jay Lefkowitz, uh, do we know what it is that North Korea wants? Has anyone asked them? Uh, I don't know that anybody knows what they want. You know, the, 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 the problem with North Korea is it is really a cult of personality. It's probably the last true remaining Stalinist authoritarian regime. They have concentration camps. They torture their own citizens. They routinely starve their own citizens. I mean, this is a cult of personality. It's not really a nation state. And the problem is when you're not dealing with true nation states that are functioning nation states, uh, there isn't the same sense of responsibility to a citizen rate, accountability. Um, and so I don't know that anybody knows what, uh, what, what the, uh, the Kim family really wants here. Jay, real quick, what do you think the chances are at this point of a violent uh, resolution to the situation? I don't think we're likely to have a violent resolution in the short term. Uh, I think China certainly has, has, has made it clear to North Korea that at least short term, a true violent uh, reaction would not be acceptable. And of course, the United States would have to react with violence if there were one. Right. South Korea it would be in jeopardy. But I do think over the next year, the United States' shores are going to be genuinely threatened. And so we can't leave it for a year from now to try to solve this problem. 
Jay Lefkowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Truly a pleasure speaking with you. Jay Lefkowitz uh, was a former U.S. Special Envoy for Human Rights in North Korea uh, under President Bush from 2005 to uh, 2009. He is currently a leading partner at Kirkland and Ellis in New York. And uh, we will continue to bring you coverage on this issue because it is one of the main concerns uh, that a lot of policymakers have. I'm Lisa Bromwitz with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. Right now, we want to get more on this from Chris Strom, Justice Department reporter for Bloomberg. And Chris, you are listening. Uh, What was your biggest takeaway from this? Well, the biggest takeaway is that they aren't actually announcing anything new so much as they're saying that they're putting more emphasis on activities to identify leakers and, and prosecute them. Uh, the session said that they've now had more referrals that they're going to investigate. And he said that the number of active investigations is, is, is higher, uh, now than it was at the end of, uh, end of last year. Uh, the Obama administration was known for, for being, for having an aggressive posture toward, toward leakers. And, uh, it, it seems that Sessions wants to e- try to even outdo the Obama administration, but, you know, we'll still have to see how it plays out in the coming months. I mean, obviously, Sessions has been under a lot of pressure to talk about leaks, and that's what he's doing. Chris, uh, just a question to you, because some uh, Republican senators, I'm thinking, for example, of the uh, judiciary chairman, uh, Chuck Grassley, back in July, he urged the leaker who had the information about the talks between Attorney General Jeff Sessions and a Russian diplomat, he urged the leaker to actually leak the entire conversation. Is there any uh, confusion amongst the Republican uh, senators about what leaks are allowed and what aren't? Well, I mean, certainly there's hypocrisy in in, in this world. And so, uh, you know, uh, one person's leaker is another person's patriot. You know, so it just depends on, on uh, your 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 politics and, and your point of view. Uh, I mean, even going back to, um, you know, uh, Trump when he was campaigning, talking about, uh, you know, Russian, you know, Russian, uh, you know, hackers should should find Hillary Clinton's emails and leak them. I mean, you know, um the idea that, uh, you know, some people support some leaks while they oppose other leaks, um, you know, is, is, you know, frequently happens. Chris, you know, I'm struck by this coming just as we find out about the uh, assembling of a grand jury for uh, Bob Mueller's team. Uh, He is the uh, special prosecutor that was appointed to look into uh, any connection with Russia and possible collusion uh, with respect to the U.S. election. And I'm wondering, you know, this raises the specter of even more leaks. And do you expect that the conversation will shift to what is classified, how, how to determine these things? And do you expect the leaks to actually stop or just simply accelerate from here? Well, it, it, it's hard to know exactly how this is going to play out. Um, uh, certainly, uh, there have been leaks that have been damaging to the, to the uh, Trump administration um, that, uh, you know, appear to come from people who, are, who, are, who, who feel that, uh, what Trump is doing is wrong, and that they need to stand up. And the and the way that they are choosing to stand up is is being, uh, you know, whistleblowers by by leaking information. Um, uh, you know, with with Mueller, you know, I think that the Trump administration seems to be trying to to build a case to discredit what uh, you know what Mueller is is finding. 
um, by saying he has conflicts of interest. And so, um, you know, to the degree that you've got, you know, these competing these, these competing forces, I think that you're going to continue to see people, um, you know, leaking information to the media uh, for what they see, you know, is 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 in their is in their best interest. And so, um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if if you do see uh, the administration come forward with some, uh, you know, new active cases. Um, but these cases take a while. They're they're hard to uh, they're 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 hard to prosecute. That's why you don't have many examples of uh, actually successful prosecutions. And so, you know, any case that that the uh, you know Sessions is working on is going to take a while to come to fruition. Is is there a, a way to? And I don't even know if it's relevant, but I mean, is there a way to define what is a leaker, what is a whistleblower, and what is a confidential source? Well, there are there in in the law there are there is definitions that um, that you know, apply when you're actually doing a leak investigation. And so um, if you're if you're somebody who's working inside government and you're not if, if you if you're working for the civilian side of government, the non-national security side of government, there are specific steps that you can go through in order to be a whistle in order to be designated as a whistleblower and have uh, job protection. Um, now, people have said that those uh, steps are very difficult to follow. And that you know they're cumbersome, and that oftentimes when people come forward and they follow those steps, they get retaliated against in in their own agency, and so there's a disincentive to actually do that. So um, yeah, but when you get into a leak investigation, you need to you know look at the look at the facts that that are that are relevant to that investigation in order to find out you know what specifically uh, you know what what specific law somebody violated and whether criminal charges can be can be brought against them Chris you know I was really struck by the comments about media subpoenas did that ring something for you as being I don't know something new yeah that that caught me um, <laughs> the idea that you know he said that they're gonna be reviewing the idea of subpoenaing uh, news outlets is uh, is something that I think uh, you know we need to watch for um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the, you know, Trump administration to try to, um, you know, go after some news outlets for uh, publishing, uh, you know, classified or, or sensitive information. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Chris Strom is our uh, Justice Department reporter for Bloomberg, uh, giving us his thoughts and uh, reaction to the uh, comments from Attorney General Jeff Sessions today uh, coming from the Justice Department. Thanks very much. Well, today's non-farm payroll report was better than estimated by a variety of economists. Joining us now is the former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, Chris Liu. He is currently a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, and he can be followed on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. ChrisLiu44, tell us, if you now have a new perspective after uh, leaving the administration, obviously, I'm wondering if you could explain to us what you have learned now that you are out of government, about the politicization of these <laughs> reports, because you know you you did it when you were in uh, when you were in the administration. You know we take that, and of course the current administration, every administration does it. But is there a way to step back and say, all right, let's not play politics with the numbers. Let's not ascribe blame or or credit. Just describe what's going on. 
I think that's a fantastic point. Numbers that we touted back in 2016, uh, Republicans loved saying were, uh, uh, loved poo-pooing them. And, and, and the flip right now is you see it going the other way where numbers that President Trump is touting, uh, Democrats often sort of say, uh, this is really glass half empty. I, I think what's fair to say about these numbers is that it's a solid growth, 209,000. Anything, anytime you have a two before, um, the number, that's a good sign. I, the, the constant here, and this runs across both administrations, is wage growth at 2.5%. And while obviously any positive wage growth is a good thing, it's really not enough to make a meaningful difference in most people's lives. And this is one of the reasons why in the Obama administration uh, we push for increases in the minimum wage, raising the overtime threshold, upskilling, which are good, sensible, I would argue, nonpartisan policies. So I think that's a concentration. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, Chris, because I was going to say that actually in the lower salary jobs, there actually has been more growth with respect to salaries as well as jobs being filled. It seems to be, uh, you know, clearly there could be more growth there as well. But, you know, there has been also very little growth at the high end. In fact, less growth at the higher ends, which is uh, which suggests that there's something larger at play here. Well, it is something larger at play. It, it, it reflects kind of the shifting of the economy right now uh, when you've got kind of a, um, an outflux of manufacturing jobs in the United States. A lot of the folks that would have those jobs in rural areas have now moved to rail, retail jobs. And so those salaries have been basically flat during this period of time. And again, looking a little bit more at these numbers, uh, while, again, overall these were positive numbers, I look at construction, manufacturing, uh, which had gains, but they weren't big gains. I looked at retail, which was essentially flat and has lost about 80,000 jobs over the last six months. And that's kind of a longer-term trend that is going to continue with automation. And so, again, this is a positive job report. But uh, as with anything, there are uh, some issues in here. Chris, is there any data that you've been able to look at that describes the relationship between actually uh, getting a job, holding a job, and the benefits such as health care, health insurance that would come with the job? Many people taking a position for those reasons as opposed to, let's say, making money or, or doing the particular uh, work. Well, you're right. It's not just the 725 that's the minimum wage. It's uh, whether people have health care, how robust that health care is. Obviously, um, the Affordable Care Act has played an important role uh, in helping to lift up people. But more broadly, it's uh, what are the retirement benefits? As larger companies have uh, moved away from traditional pension plans, uh, the longer-term security of employees is really at risk. And as you move more to a a gig economy where people don't work for one employer, for the course of their lifetime, or even at one time, uh, it creates greater economic uh, instability. And that's just not something we've really figured out a way to address quite yet in this country. You know, Chris, uh, we had our own Carl Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence on earlier, and he was saying that he does expect uh, that wage growth will start to accelerate more later in the year if we still keep getting these uh, 200 plus prints. Do you agree? Well, I, I hope so. And, and that's something that, frankly, we thought would happen um, years ago in, in, during this recovery. I mean, when we got down in the 5% unemployment and people kept saying, well, we're close to full, uh, full employment, we should start to see wage growth. That just doesn't happen. And it starts to suggest there may be broader issues going on in the economy, whether it's with automation, whether it's globalization, that may be having a powerful downward impact on wages. It also speaks more broadly as to whether the Fed is being premature in raising interest rates and whether they ought to let this recovery go on for a little bit longer. 
Of course, one of the big topics is immigration and the jobs that uh, immigrants to the United States uh, get when they arrive. Uh, can you give us your thoughts about the uh, trends that currently exist, what kinds of jobs they get, and whether these new policies will benefit, as the president has said, uh, American workers? Well, I think the bill that the president touted the other day is, is the wrong approach, and that's not just me saying that. That's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It's the IT industry. It's Senators McCain and Graham. Uh, you know, we are in a period right now in the United States where population growth really is at its lowest since the Great Depression, and that's not only because of low birth rates. It's because of uh, more people retiring, and so we need more labor in this country. And yes, we need more high-skilled labor. We need uh, to replenish and revitalize the uh, IT industry in this country, uh, but we need low-skilled labor as well. And uh, Senator Lindsey Graham said it well, in a state like South Carolina, you not only have high-tech uh, healthcare jobs, but you also have uh, retail, you have food service, you have agriculture that all needs more people. And so uh, artificially cutting in half legal immigration is not the right answer to creating economic growth. Chris Liu, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Liu is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He was the deputy secretary of labor under former President Barack Obama. And he comes to us uh, from Virginia. Well, it is another day and another billionaire uh, hedge fund manager is coming out to trash the uh, ETF industry. Paul Singer, who is the billionaire founder of Elliott Management Corp., warned that, quote, passive investing is in danger of devouring capitalism. What may have been a clever idea in its infancy has grown into a blob, which is destructive to the growth creating and consensus building prospects of free market capitalism. Well, here to defend the uh, blob that is the ETF industry uh, is our own Eric Balchunas. He is our senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, Eric, um, first, I just want to I want to ask you, you know, I have a feeling that you do not think that ETFs are devouring capitalism. Is there anything about Paul Singer's argument that rang true with you? Yeah. So there's on there's a one hand and the other. So on one hand, Vanguard and BlackRock, which are ultimately passive, that's they own almost all the passive assets, are the top in the top three holders of 95% of the S&P 500 companies. So they are becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And if we extrapolate the assets 10, 20 years down the road, you could see a world where Vanguard alone owns 30% of the stock market. At that point, I think we would, the government might step in at that point. But right now, let me give you some other context, which is to say that even though they're the top three in the top three holders of almost all the companies, they collectively only own about 13.5% of the stock market because here's why. People forget this. Mutual funds, which ETFs are included in, are a minority owner of the stock market. The rest is households, institutions, pensions, all people who are active, essentially. So you are definitely looking at a rise of passive within mutual funds where you're having more and more people uh, put their money uh, passively. Um, And I think that speaks to a bigger issue, which is that Active has lost the hearts and minds of investors, and I think that's part of what you're seeing here. You're seeing they feel threatened. They're they're losing. I'm sure he's getting calls from people saying, why don't I just put my money in the in SPY or, or in a separately managed account that's passive? And it's tough to defend. Uh, in this market, going with free exposure, essentially, it's just hard to combat that. And I think Active in the 80s and 90s got potentially a little too greedy and did not 
sort of pass on some of the economies of scale in the form of lower fees. Meanwhile, Vanguard is, then you have the world turning and now everybody wants everything cheap. And you could argue it's overshooting a little bit, but it's actives creation. Well, okay, so let's talk about Paul Singer, right? His main hedge fund oversaw $33 billion. He's not exactly hurting. He is a billionaire. Uh, that fund gained 3.5% in the first half of the year. Fine, meh, underperformed the stock market for sure. But I, I, I want to just talk to the one point that you made about Vanguard and BlackRock owning such a substantial proportion of the biggest companies. Have they shown an inclination to be active with their ownership of these shares? I mean, could they potentially affect great changes at companies without necessarily, you yeah. know, signing, you know their, their investors signing off on that? And that's my argument. Active may be owning this whole, their value for capitalism a little too much. I mean, arguably, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs aren't waiting for active managers to do what they have to do. Um, pr making profits is for the real motivation. Second, active is definitely focused on short-termism. They are definitely guilty of making everything about the quarterly earnings. Now, passive, they have corporate governance groups. Now, they're not as uh, in the face of the CEOs, but they are definitely prickly, and they vote with activists sometimes, with uh, against them sometimes. But really what their game is is to create the environment to have good uh, independent board, corporate governments, ESG policies, so that long-term value can exist. But they're not going to basically needle them on one product or another. That's not their thing. But they're not passive. They have teams that do this, and uh, both Larry Fink and uh, Bill McNabb, well, now it's Tim Buckley, have uh, come out and said exactly what they hope to do. And that's where you got this dual class listing issue with the S&P. I think it was pushed by Vanguard and BlackRock. Eric, is anybody ever going to be let go from their job if they recommend to their client that they buy an ETF, let's say, of the S&P 500, and it goes down? Well, if it goes down because the market goes down or it goes well, that's down the, beyond right, that's the market? Well, that's the S&P 500. You buy the spider, right? You buy a, an index fund, and you make it plain to the investor, here, this is what it's connected to. Yeah, so you're bringing something that's even bigger, which is um, this fiduciary uh, uh, standard, and now it's a rule. So what we're finding is the reason you see this flood, the passive flows have doubled this year. They're doubling their intensity. And it, the, I, the fiduciary rule is to is not Trump trade. It's the fiduciary rule. Correct. Because all of the money is going to the absolute cheapest products from Schwab, BlackRock, and Vanguard. They're taking like 90% of the assets. And the reason is because if you don't go to the absolutely cheapest fund, a lot of advisors are worried their clients are going to come back and say, hey, there was a cheaper fund in the market. You put me in this one, even though it was three basis points more, I'm going to sue you. And so there, this fear of the fiduciary rule is sending money to basically as low as you can go. And that's why that has exacerbated the, the fee war. Um, and now you even see the fee war in pre, uh, Vanguard free zones, like cybersecurity ETFs are now in a fee war. There's two of them and they're like going down to 60 each now. And the fiduciary rule has everybody um, that you're exactly right. So no one, yeah, it depends. I will say though, if somebody recommended SPY over IVV, you know, that's six basis points more. It's possible they get in trouble. And that's why SPY is losing money this year, partially, is because now there's cheaper S&P 500 products. That's how one basis point is is enough to double your flows. It's like the law of unintended consequences. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us. Eric Balchun, it's always a pleasure. Senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric Balchunas. Go ahead. You well, the one thing that does scare me, I will just add as sort of a, an epithet. Let me get three seconds. If, if the market tanks and everybody pulls their money out, who's going to be on the other side if active managers are washed out of the market? Well, that's why we've got Eric Balchunas. He's going to be telling us. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.